the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Hello. Welcome back. Um I hope you're all well. We are carrying on our discussion from last week. So if you didn't listen to last week's episode on uh mental health and gender and race, it might be worth going and listening to that first. Importantly, um, the trigger warnings. The trigger warnings. At the start of that episode, if you haven't listened to it, we did um mention that these two episodes are mm. uh we don't we don't mention things in too much detail, but we do talk about mental health conditions. We talk about experiences of race and racism and misogyny, um, and we talk about violence and and um, bullying. Mm. So th- some of that will come up again today. today yeah. So um, if any of that is mm. too much for yes. you, please yes. just feel free to turn us off. Yes. Um, so. Last week we were talking about um, these two particular TV programs that the BBC ran. One uh, uh, featuring Nadia Hussain talking about anxiety, and one featuring David Harewood and uh, psychosis. Uh, and we we're talking about the different ways in which they dealt with race and, and didn't deal with race. Uh, one of the really interesting things about the uh, interesting differences that we sort of mentioned in passing between the two programs was a consequence of the the featured person if you like Nadia Hussain and David Harewood and uh, the temporality of their their mental health journey so Nadia Hussain uh, talked about her anxiety as something that she deals with every day and has dealt with for the last however many years but it's a present issue for her uh, David Harewood when he when he spoke about his his psychosis spoke about it as a phase of his life that isn't as present as it is for Nadia Hussain. Uh, at least that's how it was it was depicted in the in the program, which meant that uh, a significant proportion of the David Herwood program involved him visiting the sites uh, that he associates with that period of his life when we, when he had a psychotic breakdown. And one of the things that screamed out to me as I was watching it was how many of these sites were hospitals where he uh, was uh, where he was admitted uh, at, at multiple hospital sites and how they're all now closed uh, in some cases they are part of a wider hospital complex where other buildings are, are still functioning but that particular building isn't uh, in other places they are a, a hospital building on its own that is now closed pretty much the only build hospital building that they visited in the program which is still functioning as an active hospital building uh, is the accident emergency unit where he was taken uh, when his breakdown first manifested itself and this made us think about uh, the partly the limits of empathy as we discussed last week and the political economy of access to healthcare differential access to healthcare 
and different differential access to different forms of healthcare. Yeah. Uh, both in terms of treatment and in terms of um, the different types of mental health issues. Because I think part of the problem is in terms of social discourse, mental health issues are presented as if they're the same thing. Yeah. And of course, there's a whole range of conditions, all of which have their own specificities and need their own forms of treatment and come with their own versions of prejudice and stigma. And to understand all of that, I think we need to have a better understanding of the material consequences of this political economy or the material aspects of this political economy. Yeah, it's really interesting. Mm. Um, in the last few years, I've noticed since I've lived in the UK, there's been a real change in public mainstream discourse around mental yeah. health. There's been, I think there's been a, a quite a targeted, uh, possibly government supported in, in many ways, mm. possibly kind of privately supported mm. um kind of discourse around stigma specifically, mm. asking for help, mm. um, uh, acknowledging when you're ex- when you might be experiencing the symptoms of a mental health condition, uh, talking honestly and openly mm. about uh, challenges that you might face, um, and and essentially opening up. So there's been so for example the Samaritans, which is um, we should probably put a link there anyway. Um, the Samaritans is the, the organization um, that provides 24-7 helpline um, uh, for people experiencing a crisis. Um, a lot of articles and kind of well, BBC documentaries mm. um, talking about different uh, symptoms so you can perhaps mm. recognize in yourself or in your close friends or family. Uh, that someone might be experiencing a mental health mm. condition or yeah. difficulty. Yeah. Uh, the royal family has come out and talked about, uh, Harry and William have come out and talked about experiencing mental health difficulties after their mother's death. Um, and there's also kind of discussion around masculinity. So one of the big mm. statistics, it's very, very kind of well used here, mm. is the, the statistic that young men in a certain age bracket are most likely to die by suicide, mm. um, which I think is a fascinating use of, mm. of statistics and a fascinating use of population health data mm. um, for, I think, multiple political yeah. ends. Um, and this has really changed since I arrived. Yeah. Um, and I arrived in the UK in 2010, so less than a decade ago. Mm. It's fascinating. Mm. And it's fascinating that this has coincided with a period of government austerity. Government policy has been to retract funding from public services, including healthcare. Mm. Um, especially, I would say, healthcare, because the NHS is one of the biggest industries in the country. Mm. Um, and mental health care in particular has been has been defunded and underfunded. Yeah. Um, across the board, different types mm. of services, different uh, training programs, facilities, mm. um, uh, funding for different types of therapy, research. It's all been cut 
as part of a wider political economy of austerity. Yeah. So there is uh, an increase increase in a discursive appeal to get help, ask for help, speak out, uh, and a campaign against the stigma of silence or silence caused by stigma at the same time when help is getting increasingly more and more difficult to to get hold of. Um, There is uh, a particularly with with mental health care in Britain there seems to me three distinct sources of medical help if you like. Uh, The NHS being, being one private healthcare being another. These two exist for both mental health care and, and physiological physical health care. But for mental health care, there's a third one, which I don't recognize as as existing for, for physical health care. And that is the, the advent of what, what one might call third sector charity, not-for-profit organizations, where uh, which have emerged partly due to the recognition that there is, there is a mental health care need that isn't being provided by the NHS and this need exists among demographics which either don't know about or can't afford to access um, commercial private uh, sources of support. Yes. There's also, I mean in the US you have you have nonprofits that provide mm. physical health care. The, yeah. the most famous one in the, at the moment of course is Planned Parenthood I would yes. say. Um, but there are there are charities that function mm. like Planned Parenthood yes. that specifically provide uh, multiple mm. services when mm. it comes to mental health care. Yeah. Um, but usually not psychiatry, mm. which is the I think the mm. distinction. So psychiatry, by which I mean it's sort of shorthand for uh, drugs mm. and medical interventions that require maybe surgery Mm. or um, pharmaceuticals Mm. or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Like a lot of, most of these charities won't do a brain scan, for example, and show you what your brain looks like. Mm -hmm. But other than that, they will provide cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. They will provide psychoanalysis uh, and also treatments like um, EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, um, which is often used uh, to treat patients or clients mm-hmm. who've mm-hmm. experienced trauma in the past. Um, and that kind of nonprofit world mm-hmm. is certainly in the, the Edinburgh context, mm-hmm. but I think more broadly, it was certainly the case mm-hmm. uh, when I was living in St. Andrews, um, is heavily oversubscribed. Yeah. You, if, if you want treatment um, or care, you put yourself on a waiting list. Yes. Um, one of the biggest organizations in Edinburgh uh, that provides uh, pretty comprehensive care has a waiting list, but their waiting list is often closed. Yeah. So they open up their waiting list, and then as soon mm. as they do, a mm. few weeks later, it is full again. Um, and it takes it can can often take years, mm. depending on the kind of support that you are looking mm. for. Mm. It can often take years yes. to to access. Um, Meanwhile, we have public discourse mm. that is changing. I think yeah. people are people are changing quite rapidly mm. in terms of their their understandings of themselves, their understanding mm. of uh, mental health. 
And people are asking for help. Some of the statistics coming out of universities, for example, our specific Mm. industry is that um, huge increase in students Mm. asking for help and coming to the university and disclosing Mm. issues around stress, anxiety, Mm. depression, um, or other things that happen in their lives, but Mm. that they're looking for support for, like a bereavement or a chronic illness Mm. or um, a disability or something that they're looking for some mental health Mm. care for. And the universities, of course, we talked about this in our university episode, Mm. are not able financially to deal with, can't deal with the increase in in students asking for help. Yeah, so there is... We, we spoke about these two BBC programs and the way in which they either chose not to or or chose to talk about in a, in a very specific set of ways, uh, race, gender, uh, Islamophobia and so on. Uh, the other thing that they absolutely didn't talk about is, is barriers to access of healthcare. Uh, and both, it, it's almost as if the discourse of speak out, get help suggests that the only barrier is what we were discussing last week as empathy, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to, you know, you you mentioned you mentioned waiting lists. Uh, even in the private sector, yeah, there are therapists whose waiting lists are full. Yeah. Uh, so being able to pay doesn't necessarily guarantee you the kind of healthcare you might want either. Yeah. Uh, let alone not being able to afford it. So there is. Paralleling this uh, this discourse of you know go out and get help speak out is what we might call institutional systemic barriers which look like they have been deliberately put in place in order to manage demand. Yeah. Uh, in, in some cases there are, and in some cases there are simply lack of funding, lack of resources, but they conspire together to create a system where you are being constantly reminded that you should go and ask for help while the ground reality is that no one will listen if you do yeah or people will listen but will be unable to help you yes and you will be met with a well this is what we can offer you but yes and it really individualizes. So we were talking last week about about the individual nature of, of a lot of this discourse yeah. and how individualizing allows for a sort of universalizing of the experience. Yeah. But in some ways, this is really neoliberal and doesn't yeah. universalize. It is just yeah. it. It is your responsibility yes. as an individual to yes. recognize your symptoms. Yes. To uh, not be a jerk to other people yeah. who might be experiencing mental health issues yes. and be supportive in, yes. in all of these prescribed ways. Yes. Um, and that it's at that level that you're responsible for your own care. Mm. And as if it's enough yeah. to just acknowledge that you might be experiencing anxiety mm. or that you might be experiencing depression or mm. that you might be experiencing PTSD from mm. a past mm. uh, violent experience or mm. abuse. Yeah. Um, and that that is enough, in a sense, mm. that, that from there you mm. will then go on and, and scrape and uh, persevere until you get the care that you need. Mm. It's like a collective sort of 
institutional gaslighting going on, isn't there? Yeah, it's a really weird... Yeah. Yeah. It's a really weird phenomenon. In the US, of course, healthcare is is tied up with political economy in a very different way. So we have a private healthcare system generally. We do have uh, state-funded support that is means-tested, Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, Medicare is for elderly people who are no longer working. Medicaid is for low-income families. And those, they differ mm. in terms of how, how, what they do, how they work, mm. uh, depending on where you live, by state. Um, but for the most part, mm-hmm. you have a version of, of private health care in the U.S. Yeah. And as with all of these things, the, the, the better your plan is, mm. the better your options of care are. The more options mm. you have, uh, the more comprehensive your coverage um, and the more flexible mm. your program is. And those are mm. tied up in social capital, cultural capital, actual capital, mm. um, all of that. Mm. So if you have the resources yeah. and you have the social network, mm. uh, the original social network, not the digital one, that facilitates comprehensive mental health care, you're gold. Mm. Like the, there are places and communities in the United States where there's a, a glut of psychotherapists mm. who are trained up to their eyeballs in all the latest mm. techniques. Yeah. And you can have care from birth to death mm. and have support across the life course. And that care isn't stigmatized. Yeah. And I because and I know this because I've seen it. Yeah. Um, and th- even since I was a kid, mm. counseling and therapy have have undergone a massive PR campaign. Mm. Um, you know, people I know, friends, um, acquaintances. Mm. You know, we recommend counselors to each other. Yeah. Um, people who uh, we trust to work with our particular mm. types of backgrounds and conditions. Mm. Um, people who provide the kinds of therapy that we need, mm. people who are within our budget range, those kinds yeah, of things. And, yeah. and those conversations happen. But not with my British friends. So just to think about your conversations with the American friends that you were just describing, mm-hmm. is, is it that therapy is something you seek out when there is an issue? Or is therapy something that you go to in the way that you might have a personal trainer, for example, in the way that you might have a constant source of support in one aspect of your life, whether or not there is a problem, as it were. Any, all, both mm. combination. Um, I mean, anecdotally, right, but my my friends who work in, in the mental health field will be able to know better mm. kind of across the board, but anecdotally, all. So... Yeah. Uh, as a young person, mm-hmm. um, there were friends and people that I knew um, who experienced mental health conditions that ran the gamut from eating disorders to self-harming mm-hmm. to uh, bereavement um, or the kind of serious illness of a, of a parent mm-hmm. or family member mm-hmm. that causes yeah. uh, stress and anxiety or depression yeah. or whatever. Um, and sometimes uh, also assault. Yeah. Um, 
sometimes that person would seek help for themselves. Mm. Sometimes it would be a combination of concerned parent or teacher or school mm. counselor mm. Um, that would facilitate mm. care with with kind of a spectrum of consent from yep. the friend. Obviously, before you're 18, your parents can do whatever they want. They yep. can have you admitted to yep. hospital or they can have, you know. Yeah. Um, and, but then others who just sort of asked for, mm. would say, you know, uh, especially, it's very, very common. If you have divorced parents mm. in the Bay Area um, and you are white in the children of, of professionals or um, not, as the case may mm. be, uh, many families of color access mm. therapy, you know, mm. um, that you just kind of ask. Mm. Like I knew people who would sort of ask or who would disclose an issue or... Mm-hmm. Um, and most of most of the people I know now, kind of at this age, are recognizing that there's something something that yeah. has gone on. Mm. Um, whether that is uh, bereavement or um, a past trauma or assault or uh, coming out, often mm. um, there's lots of of counselors and therapists in the U.S. who specialize in uh, helping people with sexuality and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all many reasons. Yeah. And so it's it's often a combination of something that will affect you for mm-hmm. your whole life, mm-hmm. but that is at this moment requiring attention. Yes. So I don't know anyone who's had a therapist from from the moment they're born to the day that they die. Yeah. Um, usually it's some it's a kind of for a while for a period in your life you you see someone. Um in the way, so I'm, I'm just connecting it to if you, you know, as we talk, there is a presidential election going on. Uh-huh. Uh, on the Democratic side, there is quite a, quite a large primary field of candidates who mm-hmm. are going for debates as we speak. And one of the recurring talking points on the Democratic side at the moment is healthcare is a right, not a privilege. Yeah. It is the normalization of the need for care, need for support, translated into this should be available for everybody. So interestingly, part of one of the one of the most interesting parts of the Affordable Care Act yeah. was that mental health care and physical health care had to be treated equally by insurance companies sure. because previously mental health care was seen to be more frivolous. Yeah. So you could you could pay add-ons or you'd pay higher um, copays. Yeah. Uh, so you'd pay more to see a therapist than you would to see a gynecologist, for example. Yeah. Um, but the, what the, one of the things the Affordable Care Act did, and one of the things that uh, Barack Obama was was really vocal about, mm. was that mental health care and physical health care mm. should be treated equally yeah. in terms of coverage. Yeah. Which I think generally that is the mm. position. Yeah. Um, Partly because in this this highly differentiated and hierarchical system of healthcare, the the more money you have, the better your care is. Yeah. The the people who are most deprived yeah. in that system end up um, end up without any sort of care yeah. at all. Yeah. And the United States currently has you know it's one of the most unequal societies. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a real connection between mm. social conditions like homelessness um, or 
uh, recidivism and, and being incarcerated and uh, unemployment and a lack of mental health care, mm. as well as a lack of physical health care. Mm. Sometimes mm. they overlap, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Especially when we're talking about disability. Yes. And, a, and especially uh, homelessness. Mm. There's been some really interesting research done on the closure of facilities and institutions mm. that would provide long-term health care that were funded mm. by the state mm. in the 70s and 80s and an increase in homelessness mm. um, and an increase in, uh, in unemployment mm. and the criminalizing of people with mental health conditions, uh, which is, has been ongoing for many decades, mm. has meant that people with long-term mental health conditions that really should be getting care are in prison or mm. unable to work in yeah. order to pay rent so there there's there's nothing mm-hmm. um and so that's the that was the connection that, mm. that proponents of of universal health care mm. single-payer system say that you you can't distinguish between social conditions mm. of inequality and deprivation mm. and individual mm. mental health care mm. and that's really the argument it's a very it's a kind of broad mm. brush stroke explanation mm. of it. But when you close down uh, long-term state-funded programs yes. that think and are able to work across multiple levels and at multiple registers, mm. where you're talking about crisis management mm. when someone has a, an emergency and mm. needs either short- or medium-term care... Mm and people who need long-term care and support mm. and a kind of government-funded mm. health care system, mm. you, you create, there's a sort of ripple yeah. effect. There's a knock-on effect. And what's interesting is, I mean, as you were saying this, I was trying to compare it to the situation in Britain. And I don't know if this is fully thought for, I don't think I've thought, thought of this precisely in these terms until now. The existence of the NHS, it seems to me determine the debate in particular ways. Mm -hmm. In other words, Britain talks about the limits of the NHS, how to improve the NHS, Uh, funding, you know, how to manage funding, how to make it more efficient, whether it's underfunded, to what extent does it need more money, whether it's sustainable, all of those things. But the NHS, the existence of the NHS, as brilliant as it is, it seems to me discourages a public conversation about unequal access to healthcare. Yeah. Because the NHS likes to think of itself of, and you know, generally is there to minimize unequal access to healthcare. Yeah. The points where it's failing is presented as failing across the board. Yeah. Rather than failing poor people, minorities, women, yeah. women, people of color, people with disabilities, people with disabilities and perhaps most acutely mental health care. Yeah. Right? In, in the, it, and the broad brushstroke account of the political economy of health and health care that you described in America is in many ways different from Britain, but in many ways isn't. And the similarities, I think, become more difficult to articulate mm-hmm. because of the existence of the NHS. 
Yeah. And there's a real hesitation, I think, on the part of British people to criticize the NHS. Mm. When it when it is criticized, there's a very political yeah. agenda that's about privatization, essentially. Yes. Yes. Um, but, but your sort of mainstream average person will say, you know, the United States is barbaric. Yeah. Because you have to pay for health care. Yeah. Um, which is a, a position with which I agree. Yeah. Um, having recently accessed yeah. uh, my NHS dentist. Yeah. Um, and... It means that there's a real hesitation, I think, to to talk about the political economy of mental health care and the investment that the government should or shouldn't yeah. make in health care yeah. and what how how people who have especially if we're talking about long term conditions yeah. that require lifelong yeah. treatment and management, there is a real hesitation I think to say that actually the NHS doesn't like to provide that kind of care. Mm. That when you have a nationalized healthcare system like the NHS, which was designed after the Second World War, essentially, you know, as a sort of safety net to keep the labor force going, it's mm. a tool for capitalism. Mm. Um, it's it's not a welfare state in a in a sort of socialist sense where you can work as much as you want to in the job that mm. you want and be paid to write poetry, which I would love. It's designed to keep us all in work. Yeah. But if your condition is such that even with management and care and treatment, you can't really work, mm. there's a real kind of l- lack of like willingness, ability. I mean, it's a really difficult conversation to have about how the NHS devalues people mm. Mm. Um, or the existence of a, of a socialized healthcare system mm. devalues mm. certain types of people. Yeah. And it's not just mental health care. Autoimmune diseases are, are similar. Mm. Disability, um, whether it's mm. learning disability or physical disability, suffers from a, a similar issue when it comes to uh, yeah. thinking in new ways about yeah. the way we value individual life. Um, that because of that, there's when the government says so. Uh, my partner Tom, when he teaches about, he's a health epidemiologist, public health. Uh, specialist. Friend of the pod has appeared on the podcast before. Yep, friend of the pod. Um, He teaches about uh, political discourse and health inequalities. And he teaches about how uh, in the fourth year, the sort of limits of academic work Mm. on essentially health. We can tell the government that they need to invest in health in these areas we can tell the government that they need to provide better services and better support and better care but the government will only will only really do activities that are politically willed yes Um, and it's not conspiracy it's just a sort of political will and discourse Mm -hmm. type of Mm -hmm. thing at work Mm -hmm. but he shows a really interesting set of interviews that have taken place over the last mm. kind of 10 years yeah. after, within the period of austerity yeah. where they'll get the BBC, BBC Balance will get yeah. an expert in public health or yeah. mental health on next to a politician yeah. and the the expert will say we've seen a real increase in numbers of people experiencing these conditions. Yeah. Um, young men dying by suicide yeah. is, a, is very, very commonly yeah. used here yeah. and he'll say that specialist, that expert, um, yeah. in this case as a man, will say the government needs to, we, we can tie, there's a correlation here, yeah. austerity, lack of funding has meant 
that yeah. more people are dying. Yeah. And he'll put that out there. The evidence will be there. And the politician will say, but we can't afford it. Yeah. And that's it. That is, is a statement mm. about what we value. Yeah. Or what the state yeah. values and what it's yes. willing to provide care for. Yeah. And th- I think that is really the the value of an individual life that the United States and Britain have in common. Yeah. Which is, what is fascinating is that discourse existed at the start of the birth of the NHS. Yeah. So I remember uh, uh, watching an interview, obviously a, a replay of an interview with Nye Bevan, and Nyan Bevan, Secretary of State for Health, uh, father of the NHS, really. Uh, and the argument that was being made was this is great but we can't afford this now right you know post-war British economy is really dead yeah I mean oh. it's, it, Britain is an awful state at the end of the second world war and that's the state that that's this that was the economy that led to the NHS uh, and we can't afford this now we should wait until we can and Bevan said we'll never be able to afford it we can there's always going to be things we can't afford our resources are always going to be limited which is precisely why it m- m- it is important that as a nation we get to decide what the priorities are in other words the start of the nhs was always connected to not unlimited resources in the, in other words not that we can do everything for everybody but an argument about fairness yeah right that it's not that the nhs will allow all kinds of treatment for everybody but that the NHS will create a world where your access to treatment isn't dependent on dependent on your resources. Yeah. There's there are always going there are always going to be things we can't afford, but what we can afford we can afford for everybody. Yeah. And that because that is the logic of the NHS, and at various points successfully and unsuccessfully, that is what the NHS has been striving towards throughout its existence, it is really far too easy to lapse into an assumption that when the NHS is underfunded, it affects everyone equally. Yeah. But it doesn't. And it doesn't in a way that isn't just dependent on increased funding for the NHS. An NHS with unlimited funding would still not treat everyone's healthcare equally. Well, yeah. And for example, if, if Nadia Hussein yes. were to go and access healthcare, yes. it would, the NHS, and we watch it, mm-hmm. treat her in a very particular kind of way. Yes. And it doesn't necessarily take account of who she is yes. and her background yes. and race. And that's, yes, that is how it works. Yes. How does, is, I mean, are, are we saying that private healthcare is better able to deal with these individual problems? No. No. No, 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 definitely not. Yeah. Um, and in the United States, the publicly funded options mm. um, work kind of like the NHS. Yeah. They, they work really well. Yeah. Um, like Medicare and Medicaid are, are great programs mm. when they work. Mm. Um, the argument is that everyone should have Medicare, right? Mm-hmm. And often that's what it's called. Mm. And generally speaking, it works better than private healthcare. Mm. Um, I think what we're saying is that they 
they both reproduce inequality. Yes. Um, or difference. Mm. They both reproduce difference because they they affect people mm. unequally. Mm. I mean, the U.S. system is is broken. Like we could talk about some of the really horrific stuff that happens in the U.S., yeah. but we won't. Yeah. Because um, we don't have scope for it. But they do, because they exist. They're massive kind of sets of interwoven institutions mm. that ex that exist within the wider political economy mm -hmm. which is essentially neoliberal capitalists yes they're not organizations that fundamentally undermine that system mm -hmm. they work within mm -hmm. it so a lot of the nhs's limitations in terms of money have mm -hmm. to do with the way the capital works mm -hmm. the nhs is is only as good as the pharmaceutical industry yes or as the um medical training is or as the the kind of biomedical research industry is or mm -hmm. you know the NHS doesn't operate outside of that system and so it's not able to fully undermine mm -hmm. and you know we talked about before a lot of it was about getting the labor force back into yeah. play and keeping us working for as long as possible and keeping our population mm -hmm. like growing steadily yeah. which was still a thing in the 40s and 50s you mm -hmm. know it's it seems to me that there was a a, a really interesting complex individual versus collective dynamic going on here that that is sort of inflected in equal and opposite ways as it were so on the one hand the nhs could be seen as a big bureaucratic institution that can only work in terms of treating patients as collectives where the the institution as a whole at the institutional macro level doesn't have space to treat you and your depression as distinct from me and my depression mm. right so it, it's it's treating depression as a thing yeah as opposed to individualized personalized medicine yeah so that's one way to think about it the other way to think about it is to say the NHS is treating is doing precisely the opposite it's treating all of us and all of our depression as as if we are all individuals as opposed to collective influences and causes in terms of race gender sexuality whatever yeah that our our health is wrapped up in our social conditions yes and it somehow seems like it's getting the worst of both worlds yeah so it's it's treating us as collectives in in the sense that it doesn't have the resources to personalize treatment for all of us, but it's missing the collective causes of mental health issues. Yeah, I think that second one is not just NHS yeah. and NHS as an institution. It's it's medical discourse and yes. the way that medicine yeah. constructs the body. Right, yeah. this is not just Foucault. No. It's also there's lots of doctors that talk about this. Yeah, um, there's conversations now about. Um, uh, especially when treating children, mm. um, thinking of poverty yeah. as a cause of ill yeah. health. Yeah. Public health people and epidemiologists have been doing this for decades. Yeah. Um, and the but the NHS as an institution doesn't it doesn't critique that. It's part of it. Yeah, I mean it's 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 one of the many you know massive health institutions that that. 
is part of that discourse. Yeah, so if you, I mean, it's, and it's, it isn't, again, there's a scale, a macro micro scale issue here, right? So a, someone comes to you with heart disease, you're a doctor, and you know that the postcode that they live in means that they are more likely to die 20 years, the life expectancy is 20 years less yeah. than if they live somewhere else. That, the, your knowledge of that fact can't affect the way you treat that person's heart disease. Yeah. The same person comes to you with post-traumatic stress disorder caused by years of racist bullying. Your treatment of that post-traumatic stress disorder probably has to take into account years of racist bullying. Yeah. Isn't it? Although, as we saw yeah. in the episode yes. with Nadia Hussain, not necessarily does. Yeah. You know, it doesn't necessarily happen that way. Or, or for the purposes of the TV program, certainly it didn't happen yeah. that way. If your approach to treating post-traumatic stress disorder is taking medicine, then the medicine can't be inflected based on what the trauma is, presumably. But if your treatment is therapy, then presumably it can and perhaps needs to. But it would only do it for you. Yes. So it's the same with the with the heart disease. Yes. So the the public health public health interventions are very different yes. from medical interventions. Yes. Um, although sometimes not, and that's mm-hmm. a problem. Yes. Um, but it's if we're treating somebody with post-traumatic stress the treatment isn't to fix racism yes the treatment is to allow this person to work through the trauma yes and uh experience the symptoms yes in a controlled and kind of caring environment and then work through them and i ideally give them the tools to continue living continue in the racist living world. In the racist world yes and it's the same with somebody who's managing high cholesterol and heart disease, yes. cardiovascular disease. Yes. Where you're not shutting down McDonald's. Yeah. You're not changing kind of filler food products that the food industry puts into our food. Uh, calling back to our Jamie Oliver and uh, sugar tax episode. Mm-hmm. You're giving this person types of treatment that will lower their cholesterol, that will change their behavior, mm-hmm. that will, whatever it is the structural hmm. causes are not addressed at all. And it just exists to deal with all of to provide hmm. a base level of care for every person equally. But, but if, does not exactly. exist hmm. to deal with structural factors that might cause our conditions. Yes. And of course the the private healthcare industry exists to make money. Yes. To generate profit. Hmm off of an endless supply mm. of kind of issues. There will always be profit to be made off of people's health. But there again, there's a macro-micro thing, right? Like, I, I don't... Public... The, the private healthcare industry exists to make profit. But that... And that is true at the macro level. But at the micro level, both in physical healthcare and mental healthcare, people go to private doctors and get treatment and get better and at the micro level that that private privatized doctor privately employed doctor 
isn't looking at every patient and seeing bond signs. Yeah. You know, like so so there's Yeah. And especially when it comes to mental health care, yeah. I think it's really, really interesting because I mean you were saying earlier about how uh the cost of going to a private therapist mm. is not as high as people might think depending on who you are and where you are. Yeah. Um but privatized medicine in Britain is something that is thought of as an in- indulgence for the rich. Yeah. In the way for example it isn't in India. Yeah. India has a uh, state nationalized medicine that is either free at the point of service or close to free at the point of service but it is hugely overstretched and yeah. because it is hugely overstretched you have multiple layers of uh of private private healthcare ranging from the sort of affordable to the super not affordable yeah um and then the choice of the political economy changes completely because the choice is what level of private healthcare can they afford yeah is the private healthcare political economy similar in america we don't have a base okay uh so baseline and the ultimate goal for the government is mm. that everyone is on private healthcare yeah provided by your employer yeah which is fascinating yes um and then it's you tend to get what you can afford mm. and it's a gamble mm. it's because insurance is gambling essentially yes. Um, and when you put it that way, it sounds ex- especially problematic mm. um, because insurance is gambling. It's trying to see into the future and guess what mm. you might need, yeah. what your plans are versus what you might need. Mm. And obviously that is not how health works. No, especially mental health care. Yeah. So we're getting to the point where it's not just that the repeated injunction to get help is it's not just that it's missing the point in terms of not understanding how the political economy of health is working but it's also missing the point because in the sense that the political economy the way the political economy of health is working is actively exacerbating the issues that it's supposed to deal with yes wonderful combination yeah that's pretty hopeless i think we should stress though Definitely, uh, if you're thinking about seeking help for the first time, do it yeah. in whatever way you can. Yeah. Access the NHS. If you live, if in, you live in Britain. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Don't not get help. No. We Thanks for listening. Yeah. We haven't <laughs> fixed any problems. <laughs> I, I don't think our, our theory doctor's label could be any more ironic. Okay. Really. <laughs> anyway, I hope that's been of interest. Uh, let us know what you think. Rate us, review us. Uh, let us know if you violently disagree with us. Give us your experiences. And catch you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.